When I was uh, 10 years of age, I was, um, I was a pupil at the Mother Street Junior School in Failsworth, which is in northeast Manchester. My identity was not, he's the skinny one. I remember a lesson, a lesson when I was um, 10 years of age. I'm pretty sure it was a history lesson because our teacher, Mrs. Whitehead, was describing the invasion of the Anglo-Saxons after the Roman conquest. And she was describing the Anglo-Saxons as short and stocky. And she looked around the class and said, like uh, Tyndall. (laughs) So that was my identity. If you look at Teddy Tyndall, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. And I'm going to skate across the surface of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Um, I'm going to leave it to more skilled exegetes than myself uh, to um, get into the more detailed um, phrases of 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, if there is such a person in the congregation, then maybe you could find them and ask them to do it next week. But I'm going to just skate across the surface of of, uh, some of the verses, some of the principles of 1 Peter, because as I was looking at it this week, uh, just this one thing came to me, identity and responsibility. One of my dear friends who died a couple of years ago was called Dave Waters, um, and he remains one of my modern heroes when he was a young man in his very early 20s, he, he set off, he's an American guy, he set off with a, a mate called Gary Shepherd to explore the high reaches of the Himalayan mountains in Nepal because they were looking for two tribes. One were called the Muggers, M-A-G-A-R, uh, and the other tribe, which was Dave, the tribe Dave was looking for, were the Kham people, K-H-A-M. And their idea was that when they found these language groups, they would translate the scriptures into the mother tongue of these groups of people. Uh, and they trusted in the process men and women would come to believe the Bible and, and trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. And uh, in the event, Dave saw a number of people trust in Christ uh, as he translated the scriptures and, and, sh- and shared the gospel with them. And among them were a number of young men. And in Nepal in those days, in the late 1950s, in the early 1960s, it was illegal to change your religion, particularly to become a Christian. And so a time came when a significant group of these calm men were in jail for their faith in Christ. They were unable to work in their fields. They were not allowed to be out there taking care of their animals. And they weren't able to feed their families. It was very serious and a very challenging time. By the time the New Testament was translated into calm, there were a thousand pages in the New Testament. And Dave Waters calculated that for every page of scripture, men had spent six days in prison for their faith. And Dave felt terrible. Here were some of his best friends uh, banged up in jail for their faith in Christ. And somehow these men smuggled a note out of prison to Dave. And in it, these young believers told him not to be distressed because it was a great honor for them 
to suffer for him who suffered so much for them. Now it raises the question, what does a pastor say to his flock when they're being persecuted for the very message that he brought to them in the first place? Pastor Peter, the apostle, is wrestling with that very concept as he writes this letter. He's writing this pastoral letter to churches that are scattered across Turkey and maybe wider because Christian congregations are suffering persecution for their faith. And it was as though they were like gold being placed into a a, a red-hot crucible and being refined by the, the, the searing fires of persecution. He says in verse 6, they were suffering grief uh, in all kinds of trials. And one of the most significant pastoral encouragements, I think, as I looked at this, I thought, what was, what was one of the main things that Peter was trying to do to encourage these Christians uh, who were living out their faith with a, in, a, in a culture that was so um, antagonistic towards them? And I think one of the things that I, I felt was important was it was to do with their identity. Their identity. The way you respond to pay, painful life circumstances, and pretty well to any life circumstance really, is often determined by the sense of who you are and what you are. Your personal center. These are core questions. What's my identity? There were, there were three young men in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, who once stood before the most powerful man on earth and he was blazing in anger against them. And he was angry with them because they, weren't, they were refusing to bow down to this great statue that he'd made of himself that he wanted people to worship as though he were a, a, an incarnate God. And he said to these three men, Now if you are ready, when you hear the music... To fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And when Peter, Peter's readers read 1 Peter chapter 1, and the crucible and the fire and being in the fire, they might well have thought of this story from Daniel chapter 3. Uh, But if not, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? How would they respond? Three young guys facing destruction in a literal furnace. What What would be their response? How would they work out their identity? And they said, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God whom we serve. That was their identity. That determined their behavior in a time of persecution. Now the culture was the culture was at rage around you and often impinge often do impinge on this issue of identity. What are you? Who are you? Are you essentially an evolved ape? You have no more significance on the cosmic scale than an amoeba. Therefore, morality 
is simply a human convenience intended to preserve the structure of society. But if you are really a a splendid ape, able to use tools more efficiently than a chimpanzee, then basically you can behave like an animal. You can sleep with willing females. You can find any. You can create offspring and then walk away from the mother and child to go off and find another willing female who will be willing to lie with you. You, in the meantime, have moved on and you've left your, 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 the mother of your child, you've left her to the care of the welfare state. You can do that if that's your identity. I'm really just a splendid animal. Hey, morality is just a human construct. I, I love the writings of Tim Keller. He's got a lot to say on identity. Here's a little quotation from, from, um, from Tim Keller. Um, he mentions a film that I've not seen. I don't, I don't know if anybody else has seen it here. He says, if you watch the cute little movie with Michael J. Fox called For Love or Money... Anybody seen? Oh, we have a, a movie critic among us. For like, thank you. I'm glad there's one. I haven't seen it for love of money. It's all based on this particular way of finding your identity. You have Michael J. Fox who thinks, unless I make money, I'm nothing. I have to have money. Gabrielle Anwar, the female lead, wants a man to love her. That's all she wants. They sneer at each other in the movie. She sneers at him because all that matters is money when she's after love. He sneers at her because she just wants a man to validate her. They sneer at each other. But the same theory of identity is working under each one of them. They're selling their souls to get something they feel they must have. If I have this, I'll be able to hold up my head in the world. That will be my identity. I'd like to take a quick, that's a really long introduction, I'd like to take a quick run through what Peter says about the identity of these small, scattered congregations of Christians who live as a minority group in the Roman Empire and are beginning to feel the heavy weight of discrimination and persecution. He says in verses 1 to 3, I'm sure you've covered this in previous weeks, he says, you are God's chosen people. God the Father chose you. God the Holy Spirit set you apart by working in your life. God the Son redeemed you through shedding his blood on the cross. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You're God's chosen people. The the next thing he says in verses 3 to 5 is you're God's children. You've experienced a new birth, a spiritual birth that has made you a member of God's family. You are now God's son or God's daughter. And you've been included in God's last will and testament. He's reserved in heaven for you an inheritance, which is what fathers do, except this one. Um, So don't get your hopes up. He's reserved in heaven for you an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. You are God's children. That's your identity. You're God's chosen people. You're God's children, adopted children. And you're God's beneficiaries in verses 10 to 12. He says, you have received stuff that the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. 
They were looking forward to a time when the amazing grace of God would come into the world and you have received the very thing that those prophets didn't discover but prophesied and it's come to you. And it's so rich. It's the the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's come to you in such a wonderful way that even angels are looking down upon you in astonishment at what God has done. History has led up to you and the angels are looking down upon you. You're God's beneficiaries. You're God's chosen people. You're God's children. And you're God's beneficiaries. If you're a Christian, then that's your identity. That's what you are. That's who you are. But with identity comes responsibility. I don't know whether you noticed, but... Um, I was uh, invited to be part of the England squad for Rio. Um, manager called me and said, I've, you're, the, you're, one, you're amongst the chosen ones. Um, you're to be set apart to represent your country in the World Cup. There are certain responsibilities that flow from that identity. Uh, You'll have to take care of your diet. You'll have to turn up at training. And I said, are there any city players going? He said, yeah. I said, I'm not going if they're going. (laughs) You have to behave in a certain way in the public eye. You don't leave anything. You, you leave everything on the field of play. You don't bring anything back into the dress. Every ounce of energy has got to be left on the field, especially if you are playing against the Germans. And I, I said, I'm, I'm sorry. I'd love to en- engage with that identity, but I can't, I can't take on the responsibility. So I'm not going to Rio. I'm going to be watching it on the telly like everybody else. Some of us remember an awful time, I think it was back in 1970, when Sir Bobby Moore, the greatest, one of the greatest um, back four men, I think he was probably a center half in those days, he went, he went to, I think, Brazil, and uh, well, to one of the South American countries, and he was accused of stealing something from a jeweler's uh, very early on in the tournament. And uh, there was a pandemonium in the press. Everybody was upset because he was, his identity was, he was the England soccer captain. How could he possibly be suspected of stealing from a jeweler's? With identity comes responsibility. So this issue of identity is absolutely core and critical to the way you live out your life. How, who are you and what are you? I remember when I first went to the Tyler's Green Junior School to one of my first parents' evenings. I can't remember which child we were going to visit in connection with. Um, But we went into the classroom and the children had been set a a project and around the walls were drawings of and verbal descriptions of fathers as they were seen through the eyes of these children. Children. I went to the first one. I was looking for the one that either Gareth or Joanna had written. And the first one said, my dad is fat and lazy. (laughs) 
And since I didn't have a proper job, I was a minister and I kind of worked in the study all day. I was pretty sure my kids would not have any idea what my identity was. I got out of it um, better than I, I, I anticipated. What would the world think of me as a result of my child's behavior? So with identity comes responsibility. And I'm just going to share with you this morning two areas of responsibility that come out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, With identity, you are uh, one of God's chosen people. You are one of God's children. You are one of God's beneficiaries. You've received astonishing grace, unmerited kindness. Here are some of your responsibilities. The first one is have a grace-centered mind. Have a grace centered mind verse 13 therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming your identity is that of a beneficiary of the grace of God you've been loved so deeply and everlastingly That when the Lord Jesus Christ returns from heaven to wrap up this present age and bring in a new creation, you will receive as the fulfillment of the grace you have received here, you will receive grace unmeasured. You will experience the gift of a new creation, none of which you deserve, but it will all be given to you as a free gift because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. In an an earlier verse, he refers to it as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is the reality that is to control, is to be the controlling principle in the way you think about yourself. With minds that are alert, the old version says, gird up the loins of your mind. There's something deliberate about it. You've got to make sure that this is the way you think. You've got to think this way about yourself. You don't leave it to chance. You choose this. There's a significant element of the deliberate in it. You have, to, you have to do this because you're living in a culture that encourages you all the time to think otherwise, to find your identity in money or in a man. Am I getting enough of the goodies? Am I getting the stuff my contemporaries are getting? Am I getting enough money, enough gadgets, enough me time, enough promotion, enough all sorts of things? If your identity is wrapped up in the things that you can acquire or the people you can get to love you, then you are in trouble. If that's the major source of your personal identity. We're living in a culture in which, for instance, debt has become a way of life. I've got to have the stuff I want, and I've got to have it now, even if it means not only mortgaging my house, but mortgaging my future. I've got to have it. I was brought up in a working-class home. My dad came home from work on a Friday, put a brown envelope on the table in which was money. And then my mother made it last until the following week. I never borrowed anything. Everything was lived hand to mouth. No such thing as debt. Debt was something you just didn't do. Now, 
We live in a culture where it's possible to have everything you want so that you can establish an identity by buying it even if you can't afford it. Well, that's just one area. You have to be deliberate and intentional about having your mind controlled by the grace that is going to be given to you when the Lord Jesus returns. You see, if your mind is not controlled by the hope of the glory that is coming that belongs to you in the future, then in the present, if you're not controlled by that future grace, in the present, you're going to have to have it all now. You're going to be ungenerous when it comes to the gospel because you need it for yourself. You need it for your lifestyle. How can I give away large amounts of money or time to the cause of the gospel? I've got so much. I've got to get all this stuff for myself. You won't be a sacrificial giver of yourself and of your time and of your money for the glory of God in gospel service if unless you have a conviction that your best stuff is in the future. Grace that will be given to you when Jesus Christ returns. Let your worldview terminate and be, be determined by future glory. Have a gospel-centered mind, have a grace-centered mind, because part of your identity is that you are a beneficiary of the amazing grace of God with identity comes responsibility, have a grace-centered mind, and then secondly and finally, have a God-glorifying attitude to holiness. I couldn't think of anything snappier than that. Well, that is not snappy at all, but I couldn't think of anything more memorable. Verses 14 to 23, I'm not going to explain it all, but I just want to, I, this is your identity as obedient children. You're children of God. As obedient children, you were once outside the family of God. You were living in ignorance. And he says here, you were conforming your life and your thinking and your behavior to the impulses and the appetites of a self-centered heart. But now you've experienced a new birth, a spiritual birth, and now you are children of God. You've become a child of the Most High. You're the child of a Holy Father. He's not fat and lazy. He's a Father who loved you more deeply than you thought possible. And so you want to please Him. Because He's such a great Dad. He tells you what pleases Him. He tells you what pleases Him. Be holy. He says here, for I am holy. It's lifted straight out of the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus. Be holy, for I am holy. When God called you through the gospel to be part of his family, he was calling you to be a member of a holy family. Holiness is the result of reflecting the character of God in your behavior. Many modern churches, I was speaking to our brother from Colombia a few moments ago, many modern churches teach that God is more concerned about your health, your wealth, and your happiness than anything else in life. 
And whole swathes of the Christian church, particularly in Brazil and in other places, whole swathes of the Christian church have been taken up by this teaching that says that God's main business is to promote your health, wealth, and happiness. But God's primary priority in the scriptures is the holiness of his children. He's passionate about his own glory. And there's nothing that glorifies him more than children who reflect his character, who flee self-centeredness, people who pursue kindness and mercy, people who avoid hurting each other verbally or by action, people who seek to encourage and strengthen each other, people who will do anything to avoid living a life of proud self-dependence. Holy children. One of the great features of the nature of God that comes out in this passage is that he's other-centered. He created a world, not just for his glory, but for our benefit. He sent his son to die on the cross for our benefit. He's reserved in heaven an incomprehensibly wonderful inheritance for your benefit. He paid for those benefits in the person of Jesus, who shed his precious blood like a sacrificial lamb. Verse 19. We've not been redeemed with empty way of life and the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's lovingly, God is lovingly sacrificial in his heart. He looked at the the greatest and most glorious thing he ever knew in all of eternity. He looked at his son and he allowed his son to come into this world to live a human life, a perfect life for your righteousness. He lived a wonderful life and then he offered himself up in sacrifice on the cross and as his blood was shed, he was becoming the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These Jewish believers had inherited a way of life that was futile. They had religion without God for the most part. They had church without salvation. They were going nowhere and they were going nowhere eternally. They had animal sacrifices but not forgiveness. But Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb. And though through shedding his blood he paid the only price that could take away sin and make us right with God. And you can't buy that with silver or gold. If you have been bought by such an astonishing price, if that's your identity, what will be your response? What will be your responsibility? Verse 22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. You pursue a life of other-centered love. With all your failings and with all your um, falling short, if you have been redeemed by another centered heart, you've been brought out of darkness into marvelous light by another centered God, 
A God who loves you so much that he gave the most precious thing he had, his darling son, to die on the cross for you and receive the judgment for you. If you have such a God as that, will you not then pursue another centered lifestyle? If we said we were saved by another centered God only to respond by continuing to be self-centered people, what does that say about our identity? He put my needs before his own comfort. He went to the death of the cross to do me good, who deserved absolutely nothing. What's our response? Love one another deeply. This love is described as without hypocrisy or pure. You don't put it on as a mask. You know, my great temptation as a pastor is to put it on, and I'm going out of the door on Sunday morning, put on my love mask, because I can't stand the sight of these people. No, no, this flows from an authentic appreciation that Jesus loved me. This love is without hypocrisy. Described as pure love, its concern is the welfare of the other and not getting something for myself. You know, a lot of our love, a lot of our niceness is actually manipulative. Because we're actually being nice to people, being kind to people, because we want to get something for ourselves. That's not pure love. It's not the love of Christ. It's a pure love. It genuinely seeks the well-being of the other, even at personal cost. And it's a, it described here as a fervent love. The Greek word means stretched. It's stretched out love. The Lord Jesus was stretched out in love for me. It wasn't easy for him to die on the cross and receive the judgment of God. He didn't go to the cross with a happy song in his, on his lips. He called out in terrible agony, pleading with his father that this horrible cup of, of judgment might, might not have to be swallowed by himself. But he stretched himself out to it, out of love for those who would be saved. Well, it's not easy being a loving church member, loving those other people, with a sincere and a pure and a fervent love. Because in the end, none of them are as nice as you. It's sometimes quite hard to go on choosing to love when everything in you is hurting and you want to cut yourself off from those wretched people. But it's how your heart begins to respond to the love that brought you to new birth, to a place in God's family and to an immensely glorious future. Your identity, I'm saved by the blood of Christ. Your identity is to flow out in a responsibility. Love one another. Love one another deeply from the heart for you being born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Your members of a family of another centered being. And as we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, it's a good time to reflect on how other-centered we really are, how other-centered we've been this week. If our identity is primarily at core, deeply, 
that I'm part of the chosen race, a child of God and a beneficiary of grace.